There are many who like to compare the lives of, and the deaths of the Greek philosopher Socrates and Jesus of Nazareth. And there are some similarities, to be sure. Both men were considered threats by the establishment of their day. Socrates was actually convicted by a jury of over 500 of his Athenian peers on two charges. One was corrupting the youth of Athens, and the other was a a very general charge of impiety. The charges were spurious, but Socrates was nevertheless convicted and sentenced to death. His disciples urged him to flee, and frankly, the Athenians expected him to flee. But he refused. And with his students gathered around him, dramatically drank the poison hemlock and died in 399 B.C. Jesus, too, was considered a threat by the establishment of his day. Jesus openly challenged the hypocrisy of the religious leadership of the Jews, and they hated him for it. They charged him with blasphemy and later insurrection. He was convicted falsely and executed at the hands of the Romans, most likely on the first week of April, 33 A.D. Like Socrates, Jesus could have fled, but refused to do so. So there are similarities, but there are serious differences as well. Socrates was a sinful man, not necessarily an evil despotic man or a degenerate man. I'm not saying that, but he was a sinful man. He never asserted otherwise. He never claimed perfection. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, was the sinless God-man. He claimed to be God. He claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. And he claimed that in order to get to heaven, you had to go through him. Those are striking differences. But the biggest difference is when Socrates died, he stayed dead. When Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead three days later. And over 500 people witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And those are pretty serious differences. Socrates may very well have taught his followers how to die with dignity. I'll give him that. But Jesus taught his followers how to both live and die with hope. With a confident expectation of the future. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us confidence with regard to the future. Jesus crossed over into death and came back. Not in the way that some have asserted, not for 45 minutes, not for 90 minutes. Not, he didn't have a near-death experience. He died and he was buried. And then he walked out of that tomb three days later in a body that will never die again. What we call a resurrection body. The events that are associated with Resurrection Sunday are among the most difficult in all of the Gospels to harmonize. All four Gospel writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded information about that day, and all four did so from a different perspective. None of the writers sat down to write a complete description of the event. That was not their purpose. With that in mind, let's see if we can't reconstruct, as best as we can, the events that took place on Resurrection Day. The first thing is, there's very little recorded, if anything at all, about the resurrection itself. After Jesus is resurrected, then we have this series of events. Shortly before dawn, on that Sunday morning, 
There was an earthquake. Matthew chapter 28, verse 2 records that. The stone was rolled away then that had been placed over his tomb. The stone was rolled away by an angel, not to let Jesus out, but to let others in. Key point, not to let him out, but to let others in. The guards then become like dead men. I would too. If I was guarding a tomb and an angel came and rolled away the stone, I'd be like a dead man as well. Matthew 28, 4 records that. They leave and they go report to the Jewish leadership. Some take that, a few take that, to imply that they were part of the temple guard and not Roman soldiers. But it's more likely that they were part of the Roman garrison, given the fact that they are ultimately answerable to Pilate. Matthew chapter 28, verse 11 and following. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. When they had assembled the elders and the consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day that the disciples stole the body. In fact, it's commonly reported in some circles even today that the disciples stole the body. Grave robbery was not uncommon in those days. In fact, it was so prevalent that during his reign, the emperor Claudius made grave robbery a capital offense. But we have to remember that these Roman soldiers were charged with guarding this tomb so that there would be no resurrection faked. And it's highly unlikely that Roman soldiers would allow Jesus to escape because they would have been executed had they allowed such a thing. If the disciples of Jesus had stolen the body, all they had to do was find the body. They never found the body of Jesus. It's totally, totally unreasonable to think that the disciples stole the body. Shortly after this, immediately after this, a group of women make their way to the tomb early in the morning before dawn. Jesus is risen on Sunday morning before the sun comes up. Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala, is the first among the women to arrive. Now, why? We don't know. Was she younger? Did she walk faster? Did she run? We don't know, but she's the first to arrive. When she gets there, she finds the stone rolled away and runs immediately to tell Peter and John about it. Now, kind of try to picture this in your mind. You've got at least three ladies that are moving toward the tomb. One goes in front of them. One gets there first, sees the tomb open and the stone rolled away, and Jesus is not there. The guards are not there. I'm sure she's freaking out. She loved Jesus in a very special way. And she's freaking out that somebody has taken his body. It's possible that the other women arrive about the same time that she's leaving because she uses the plural we in John chapter 20, verse 2. Then she ran to tell Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the author of the gospel, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. The other women, Mary, mother of James, and Salome and Joanna, actually one gospel writer uses one name, one uses another. It's possible that they were the same person, just two names for the same person. Then they arrive at the tomb. Mary has already run back. They arrive at the tomb. They enter the tomb, and they encounter an angel who tells them that Jesus is risen and that they should go and tell the disciples. Luke actually mentions a second angel, so there are two angels there. And then these women leave. 
But the angel answered and said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know who you seek, Jesus, who's been crucified. He's not here, he's risen. And he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring the disciples' word. Now, this time, Peter and John have found out that Jesus is not in the tomb anymore. And so they run, having spoken to Mary of Magdala, they run to the tomb. John outruns Peter and arrives first. There's always, there's always been speculation. Perhaps John was younger than Peter, and that's why. Maybe he's more enthusiastic. I doubt that. But maybe he's younger. But for whatever reason, John gets there first. John stops and looks into the tomb. Peter doesn't stop. Impulsive Peter runs right by John and bursts into the tomb. When they get there, when they're both inside the tomb, they see Jesus' clothes neatly folded and a face cloth folded separately apart from the clothes that covered his body or the, the strips of linen that had covered his body. This is an important detail. There are no unimportant details in the gospel record. This is important in that it's also very unlikely that if someone had come and somehow stolen the body of Jesus, rolled the stone away, stolen the body of Jesus while the guards are asleep, they're most likely not going to take time to roll the, the, the linens up in neat fashion and place the headpiece in neat, in neat fashion next to it. I've had my home burglarized a time or two. One time it was burglarized as a joke. That's the kind of family we have. My brother played a joke on me and burglarized my home while I was gone one time. I noticed when I came in, though, that nothing was really broken. There, the, the sofa was turned over and the chair was turned over, things like that. And finally, they called a little while later and said, ha ha, we, we broke into your house. Nothing's gone. So I said, well, that's really funny. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> Made my day. <laughs> a few weeks later, I'd gone to another conference and came back, and here it is again. I mean, God, God, my sofa is turned over, the television, the television cable box was gone. Now, this time they'd gone too far because they had broken some things in my kitchen, and I looked out into the living room, there's things broken out there, and I called my brother, I said, hey, Tom, now come on, man. Twice, it's not funny anymore. He said, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, didn't y'all break into my house? He said, no, 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 we didn't break into your house, and believe me, we wouldn't have broken anything if we broke into your house. You see, these guys came in, stole a bunch of stuff, stole a, my whole collection of silver coins. Can you imagine that? Had a big jar. I mean, a huge one of these five-gallon things full of silver coins. I'm sure they took them and used them in pinball machines. I was sickened by that. But the point is, they left the place in a mess. People who burglarize your home or go in and rob and steal things don't typically sweep up after themselves. And that's what happens here with Jesus. You can tell that at the resurrection, Jesus is resurrected in a fairly leisurely fashion. He gets up and takes the time to fold up these garments of death that he has been wrapped with. After they see this, Peter and John wonder and then they depart. As they're departing, Mary of Magdala comes back. Shortly after they leave, she's weeping. And she looks into the tomb herself. She sees the two angels inside the tomb. And they ask her, woman, and remember from our studies previously, that's not a, a negative term. That's the way that you would address someone in that culture. Woman, why are you weeping? Mary responds, because they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've put him. 
she turns around and she, she sees a man who she thinks is the gardener. People have often wondered about this too because how could she mistake Jesus for the gardener because that's who it really is. But we need to remember that Jesus being there was totally outside of the context that she was living in at that particular moment. She had tears in her eyes, and typically when we have tears in our eyes, we don't see as clearly as we might otherwise see. But she turns around and sees a man who she thinks is the gardener. This is actually the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Again, she thinks he's the gardener says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. And I'll go get him. And I'll bring him back. Jesus responds to her with one word. Now remember, she thinks it's the gardener. That one word is her name. Mary. And then I'm sure emotion flooded her soul because she realized who it was. Mary. How would the gardener have known her name? Mary. Jesus is sheep know his voice and they respond to it. Mary. Probably the most tender time she had ever had her name spoken. She responds, Rabboni, Rabbi. She apparently clings to him as you would. Anybody would. I would have. You would have. She, she attempts to cling to him and he says, no, you can't do that. I want you two to go back and tell my disciples. So Mary then leaves. And tells the disciples exactly what has happened. Jesus then appears a second time to the women who had gone to the tomb as they were on their way back to report to the disciples. He gives them a message which is recorded in Matthew chapter 28 verses 8 through 10. As they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said... Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The disciples apparently have gotten the message more than once now, that they're supposed to go to Galilee, but they get the message, but they are still stunned. A lot of people make fun of the disciples at this point. I don't, because I, I, you have to put yourself in the position that they were in. Their world had been rocked just the Friday before, completely rocked. The Messiah that they had worshipped, the one that they had, had counted on to, to bring in the kingdom into Israel, had been crucified. It was outside of their box. And they didn't really know what to do. Now, Jesus had told them that he was going to be crucified. He told them that he would be raised three days, three days later before it ever happened. But they weren't listening. Have you ever been that way? I have. You know, somebody tells you something. Then later on, they say, well, what, what's, what's up? You didn't take care of that? Well, well, I didn't know I was supposed to do it. Yeah, I told you earlier. Wives and husbands do that, don't they? You know, we fake deafness a lot of times, but sometimes we have real deafness. I, I didn't hear you say that. Well, the disciples somehow, did, it wasn't in their box. It wasn't within the context in which they lived. And so they don't go to Galilee right away. They hang around. Sometime that afternoon, there were two other appearances of Jesus. One to Peter, and the other to James, the half-brother of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5, records that meeting that Jesus had with Peter, but tells us nothing else about it. We don't know where it occurred, and we don't know anything else about it. I can guess what might have happened there, though. But I can also surmise why we're not told. 
Because this is a very private meeting between Jesus and the one who is probably, arguably, his best friend on earth, humanly speaking. That's Peter. But you remember what's happened just a few hours before this. Actually, a few days and a few hours before this, Peter has denied with a curse that he even knew Jesus. When they came to arrest Jesus, remember Peter is the only one that tried to fight for him. He pulled out that knife and cuts off Malchus's ear. Looks like he was trying to kill him, but he cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus says, listen, that's not time for this. If I wanted to, to clean this mess up, I could call it legions of angels. Twelve legions of angels. 72,000 angels under the Roman system of legion, legionnaires. So that's not, that's not it. I'm going to the cross, Peter. Put that sword away. Hours later, Peter denies that he even knows him. No, I don't know the blankety blank, blank, blank. That's the last contact that Peter had had with Jesus. In fact, the last contact Peter had had with Jesus before this moment that's recorded in 1 Corinthians 15 is a glance. The third time that Peter denied Jesus, the text tells us that Jesus turned and looked at him. They apparently were close enough by that Jesus could hear. Turned and looked at him. What a look that must have been. What a convicting look that must have been. I can only imagine that look. And sometimes I have imagined that look. When I do something, and I know you've done the same thing, so nobody's on a pedestal today. But when I do something that I know is not right, I know it's not right, and yet do it anyway. Demonstrate at least for that moment that I don't love God, because if I loved him, I'd keep his commandments. But demonstrating at least for that moment that I don't love him, and sometimes I picture in my mind Jesus looking right straight at me. What are you thinking? This is a private meeting because it needs to be private because this is a matter between Jesus and Peter. This is a not, not a matter for the whole church. It's not a matter for the whole di disciple group, the apostolic group. It's just between Jesus and Peter. And I'm quite certain at this meeting, Peter made his confession to Jesus. And Jesus accepted it. And from this time on, Peter's walking in fellowship with God. Not perfectly, but consistently. Then he also appears to James. James is an interesting character. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up in the same house with him. Yet before the resurrection, he had rejected him. A prophet holds no honor in his own hometown. Jesus found that out when he went back to Nazareth. Apparently, that's true even in your own household. Sometime in the afternoon, James and Jesus have a meeting. And James is, is changed forever. He goes from rejecting his brother completely to serving him with his life and dying for him. Pretty serious change has taken place in James's life. Later on in the afternoon, Jesus then will appear on two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus is not that far from Jerusalem. That's recorded in Luke chapter 22, chapter 24, verse 22. It's a, that must have been a marvelous meeting because during that meeting, uh, Jesus explains all about himself from the Old Testament. I would have loved to have had a recording of that. We could do away with many, many courses in seminary and just play that tape. It would be wonderful to have heard that, how Jesus has been revealed in Old Testament. And then that evening, the final appearance on that Sunday, before the sun has gone down, Jesus appears to the disciples that are huddled in a room, locked, still afraid. Minus Thomas. 
At that point, he, he is a little bit abrupt with the disciples. And Mark tells us that he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Jesus knows he's going to leave soon. And these men, the men that were in that room, they were going to have to take the torch and move forward. And so it's time for Jesus to ruffle their feathers just a bit. These disciples should have been on the way up to Galilee by now. They should have had their bags packed. It shouldn't have taken them very long. Galilee would have been least three days to get to if you were hustling. I mean, you'd have to really hustle to get there in three days, more, most likely seven. They should have been on their way, but they're not. They're still in Jerusalem, locked in this room. And so Jesus does rebuke them ever so gently, but he does rebuke them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe. All the evidence was there. Not just one witness, not just two witnesses, but several witnesses by now. Two of them had seen the empty tomb. Two of them had seen the cloths folded neatly. Two of them that were in that room, yet they didn't go. That's a reconstruction of the events that occurred on Resurrection Day, as best as I can do it. Again, it is difficult. People have different views on some of the minor details, but that's the essence of it. But yes, it happened, but so what? There's got to be a so what somewhere. What's the significance of the resurrection? Is it significant? The answer is yes. Yes, with an exclamation point, it's significant. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an essential event in the Christian faith. Without it, there is no Christianity. The resurrection is an essential event. Those who would say, I am a Christian, yet I deny that Jesus ever rose from the dead... I deny that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. The Bible would beg to differ with you. The answer to the question, is the resurrection significant? Absolutely it's significant. It's essential. Just as the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was proof of his deity and his lordship, so also the resurrection is an indispensable proof of the evidence of the value of his death on the cross. The story of Josephus reports to us that there were up to two dozen people that were walking around Palestine at the same time Jesus lived, claiming that they were the Messiah. Because they could read the book of Daniel, they, they could do the, the math on the weeks till the Messiah would come. Plenty of them did. And there were plenty of false messiahs, plenty of antichrist, if you want to use that term, with the little a. There were plenty of them. But there's only one that proved that he was actually the Messiah, not just by what he said. I could get up here today and tell you I was the Messiah. Now, I'm not. <laughs> People have done that. And most of the time with very unfortunate consequences, by the way. People did that in Israel, too, in the, in the first part of the first century. But there was only one. Only one that proved that he was who he said he was. Not by virtue of just what he said, but also by virtue of what he did. I don't know what these other messiahs claimed it could be like some of the old gene dixon predictions you remember those from back in the 60s you see them on the national Enquirer and things and i, I would love to i'd love to read those every year because they're pretty much the same way back then elizabeth taylor would get divorced remember that that was another one. that was one of the predictions not our elizabeth taylor but the popular elizabeth taylor she'd get divorced it was almost like there's going to be a big volcano somewhere there's going to be an earthquake somewhere tornadoes will ravage the midwest at some point this next year 
Well, yeah, anybody can say that. I can say that too. People can read the tea leaves. They can make predictions. Today, they can make all, all kind of predictions could reasonably be made about the stock market and currencies and things like that by people who know trends and know history. That's easy to do for the people that know about those things. But to say, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified on the Passover, on the week of the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then I'm going to be raised again on the third day? Now, that's a pretty serious prediction. We ought to be able to see if he's who he said he was or if he wasn't based upon that, shouldn't we? That's the significance of the resurrection. The resurrection stamped validated on everything else that he did and everything else that he said. If he's not resurrected, then we have, we have no cause to believe anything that he said. I'll say that again. If he's not resurrected, we have no cause to believe anything that he said because he himself staked his entire reputation his entire ministry on the fact that he would be raised from the dead. That's pretty serious. And he was. If he wasn't raised from the dead, we should go home and do something else. There's no point in setting up church and giving money and sacrificing one's life to go get the gospel to other people. If he wasn't resurrected from the dead, we should go do something else. But if he was, that's another story, isn't it? If he was resurrected from the dead, then what's my responsibility? Perhaps it's to fall on my face and worship him, to acknowledge that he was who he said he was, to acknowledge that he's the only way to the Father, to place my faith and my faith alone in him for eternal life. If he was, you see, it all hinges on that resurrection. Did it happen or not? If it happened, then we must submit. If it didn't happen, then we can all go our own way. We don't need to pretend. We don't need to play games. Life is too short. Let's get into something else. Let's have fun. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. Let's have a good time. Of course, I think Christians have a pretty good time, too. That's the significance. It is significant. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. Paul was a man who had dedicated every fiber of his being to telling others about Jesus Christ. He saw him resurrected. And he dedicated every ounce of himself. He, he spent himself in a worthy cause. And he says, listen, if Christ is not raised from the dead, I'm wasting my time. And guess what? Your faith has been wasted too. He goes on later in the same chapter to say this, and if Christ has not been raised your faith is worthless, and get this, you're still dead in your sins. I wonder what he meant by that. You're still dead in your sins. I thought that the work of salvation was finished on the cross. Tetelestai, it is finished. Remember the, almost the last words of Jesus on the cross? I finished what you sent me to do. The work of salvation is finished. Well, if it's finished on the cross, then why does Paul now here say, if he, didn't get, if he was not raised from the dead, then you're still dead in your sins? It almost sounds like it wasn't finished. Well, it was finished on the cross. But the confirmation that Jesus is who he said he was, was manifested in the resurrection. That's what Paul means. If Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, all the stuff he did before that is worthless. It's meaningless. It has no more meaning than Socrates' death almost 400 years before that. 
Maybe Jesus could have taught his disciples how to die with dignity. And we'd all like to die with dignity. And there are people who are Christians and people who are non-Christians who die with dignity. Sometimes people just have courage to face it. But Jesus didn't just teach us to die with dignity. He taught us to die with hope. This last year has seen several people that I knew and loved very much pass from this life into the next one. And every single time one of them died, I had to look at the resurrection for my confidence and for my hope. That's where I looked every single time. Because Jesus has gone there and he's come back. He's the evidence that there is life after this one. Everything else is just anecdotal. And I mean no disrespect to the people who have had near-death experiences. But that's anecdotal. Jesus is the validation that there is life after this one. So Jesus' death and his resurrection give me hope. Now in the Greek language, the, the Greek term for hope is elpis, E-L-P-I-S, elpis. Elpis doesn't just mean hope in the same way that we think of hope. Are the Astros going to ever get to 500 this season? I hope so. <laughs> well, you're laughing because maybe they will and maybe they won't. And maybe there's a better chance that they won't than they will. I don't know. I hope that they do. But that's not the kind of hope that the Bible talks about. That's not the kind of hope that Jesus gave us. He gave us confident expectation. That's the meaning of the Greek term. Not just maybe it will, maybe it won't. The Greek term elpis means confident expectation of the future. That's what we can have as those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Not in our own goodness and in our own merit. Only as those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. You know what? I know in whom I have believed. And I am confident that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. I'm not believing in myself. I'm not trusting myself. I know my own frailty. I'll tell you, we're not going to have confession time this morning. So I'm not going to let you up here. But you could amen that too silently in your own soul. You know deep down you're not good enough to get to heaven. Because you know your own soul. You know the thoughts of your soul. You know things you've done in the past. You know things you're planning on doing today. We all know that. It takes perfection to live with the perfect God. And we know we're not perfect. But Jesus Christ was. So I know in whom I have believed. Do you know in whom you have believed? Who are you trusting? You're all trusting someone. Everybody in this room is trusting someone or something to get them into heaven after they die. And there may be one or two that, that would claim that they think we just puff out of existence and then, then it's all over with. I don't believe for a minute you really believe that. But you can claim to if you want to. We're going to spend eternity somewhere, and I know who I'm counting on, the resurrected Jesus Christ. Not a dead prophet, but a resurrected Savior. That's the difference between Christianity and any other faith in the world. We don't worship a dead prophet. We worship a risen Savior. And I mean no disrespect to other faiths. I really don't. I pity them. Because you can have the other kind of hope then. Well, am I going to go to heaven when I die? Well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Have, let's see, have I done all those five things I'm supposed to do? Have I made that trip? Have I given to the poor? Have I done those? Have I done them with enough vigor? Lewis Berry Schaefer, outstanding theologian of a past generation, summarized the importance of the resurrection in these words. Schaefer said, His resurrection is vitally related to ages past to the fulfillment of all prophecy 
to the values of his death, to the church, to Israel, to creation, to the purposes of God and grace, which reach beyond the ages to come and to the eternal glory of God. Fulfillment of the eternal purposes related to all of these was dependent upon the coming forth of the Son of God from that tomb. He arose from the dead. And the greatness of that event is indicated by the importance of its place in Christian doctrine. Had Christ not arisen, he by whom all things were created in the heavens and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, he for whom all things have been created, by whom all things consist or hold together, every divine purpose and blessing would have failed had he not been resurrected. Yes, the very universe and the throne of God would have dissolved and it would have been dismissed forever. All life, all light, hope would have ceased. Death, darkness, and despair would have reigned. Though the, though the spiritual powers of darkness might have continued, the last hope for a ruined world would have been banished eternally. It is impossible for the mind to grasp the mighty issues which were at stake at the moment when he came forth from that tomb. At no moment in time, however, were the great issues in jeopardy. The consummation of his resurrection was sure, for omnipotent power was engaged to bring it to pass. Every feature of Christ's salvation, position, and hope was dependent upon the resurrection of the Lord. The Bible presents Jesus as rising physically from the grave. And that's no small point. We believe in the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Marcus Borg is an Oxford-trained professor that teaches at Oregon State University. He's also a fellow of the Jesus Seminar. And to call the Jesus Seminar a, a group of liberal philosophers and theologians would be a mighty understatement. But that's Marcus Borg. Professor Borg denies that Jesus rose physically. He denies that he rose bodily. In fact, he also denies most of the miraculous in Jesus' life. Borg believes that Jesus lives, to be sure. It's an interesting paradox. He believes that Jesus is alive, but he believes that, in his words, Jesus lives in the hearts of his followers. To quote Marcus Borg, he said, The truth of Easter has nothing to do with whether the tomb was empty on a particular morning 2,000 years ago or whether anything happened to the corpse of Jesus. I see, Borg says, I see the truth of Easter as grounded in the Christian experience of Jesus. As a living spiritual reality of the present. Did you catch that? As the experience of Jesus. And when Borg says that I've seen him do it, he's, the experience of Jesus in some ineffable way. Jesus lives on in the hearts of his disciples. That's not good enough for me, my friend. I'm not staking my life on that. The experience that some people may have of Jesus. Borg goes on to say, I think the resurrection of Jesus really happened, but I have no idea if it involves anything happening to his corpse, and therefore I have no idea whether it involves an empty tomb. 
And for me, it doesn't matter because the central meaning of Easter, the Easter experience or the resurrection of Jesus, is that his followers continue to experience him as a living reality. Now listen, I experience Jesus as a living reality. That's true. But I experience him as a living reality because he rose physically from the dead because he is alive. Otherwise, I'm fooling myself. And it's not in my best interest to fool myself. It's not in my best interest to fool you, nor in yours to let me fool you. We need to think critically. We need to use the reason that our, that our, our wonderful God gave us and think through these issues. Again, Borg says, the Easter experience or the resurrection of Jesus is that his followers continue to experience him as a living reality, a living presence after his death. So Borg is, Marcus Borg says, I would have no problem whatsoever with archaeologists finding the corpse of Jesus. For me, that would not be a discrediting thing to the Christian faith or the Christian tradition. On the contrary, Dr. Borg, on the contrary, it certainly would. The empty tomb of Jesus is essential. I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where it is. If you reject that, then go ahead and feel free to reject everything else about Christianity. I challenge you, if you reject the resurrection, feel free to reject everything else. You may as well, may as well. Jesus was physically resurrected, as opposed to a spiritual resurrection. The body that came out of the tomb was his body that had gone into the tomb. It, had been, it was transformed, to be sure, but it's the same body, which tells me if we're going to have a resurrection body like Jesus's, the body that I die with is the same body that's coming back. Now, I hope there is a transformation there somewhere. You probably do too. Some of you don't have to hope that, but most of us have to hope that there's a little bit of plastic surgery that's taking place. <laughs> and there is a little liposuction maybe, I'm not sure. <laughs> Jesus was physically resurrected as opposed to a spiritual resurrection. The body that came out was transformed, but it was the same body. Now listen, the tomb was empty. Jesus was touched and handled. That's not just him living in one's heart. He was touched and he was handled. Jesus asserted that his resurrection body had flesh and bones. Touch me and see, a ghost, a spirit does not have flesh and bones, does it? Luke 24, 39. Jesus' flesh was not sinful flesh, as Paul used the term, but he died and rose in actual human flesh. Jesus ate on at least four occasions in his resurrection body. There will be feasts in heaven. Jesus' body had wounds, his hands and his feet, memorial scars. We won't have wounds on our resurrection body. None of us are worthy to have a wound on our resurrection body. He's the only one that's worthy of a memorial scar. Even the Apostle Paul. I thought sometimes, will the Apostle Paul have maybe a scar around his neck where his, from his decapitation? Well, some of the early Christians have burn marks on their skin because of being burned at the stake for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The answer appears to be no. The only one worthy of wounds is Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection body was recognizable. And Jesus' resurrection body could be seen and heard. Uh, when they were promised a body like Jesus's, it'll be different in one sense from the one that we have now, but it's still going to have physical properties. There'll be different physical properties, but it'll still be a physical body. Marcus Bork said that it would not bother him at all if the, if the body of Jesus was someday discovered. It would bother me greatly, but it's not going to be discovered. 
Because I know where the resurrection body of Jesus is. I'll, I'll tell you free of charge. I know where it is. And you can't get there right now. My friend Elizabeth Taylor got there on Friday. One day we'll get there too, but the resurrection body of Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. I know where he is. If, as Borg suggests, they find the body of Jesus, it's all over for us. It is all over. We are still dead in our sins, and he wasn't who he said he was. But the truth is that Jesus did rise from the grave. He validated that he was who he said he was. And when we place our faith and our faith alone in him, apart from any merit of our own, When we come to God with the empty hands of faith and say, Father, I am trusting Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and to grant me eternal life, we can confidently know, we can have that elpis, that confident expectation that we'll spend eternity with him. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, writes these words, and I close with this. The Gospels show the disciples cringing in locked rooms, terrified that the same thing that happened to Jesus might happen to them. Too afraid to even attend Jesus' burial, they left it to a couple of women to take care of his body. The disciples seemed utterly incapable of faking a resurrection or risking their lives or stealing a body. Nor did it occur to them in their state of despair. According to all four Gospels, women were the first witnesses of the resurrection a fact that no conspirator in the first century would have invented. Jewish courts did not even accept the testimony of female witnesses. A deliberate cover-up would have put Peter or John, or better yet, Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea in the spotlight, not built its entire case around the reports from women. Since the Gospels were written several decades after the events, the authors had plenty of time to straighten out such an anomaly, Unless, of course, they were not concocting a legend, but recording the plain facts. The plain fact of history is that the tomb was empty. The resurrected Jesus was seen by over 500 people. The Apostle Paul went from a persecutor of Christians to a Christian persecuted for his faith in Jesus Christ. After seeing the resurrected Christ, James, the half-brother of Jesus, went from skeptic to martyr for Jesus. Peter went from one who denied that he even knew Jesus to one who himself died for the resurrected Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. It is an historical fact. And we all have to face that fact and respond to it in one way or another. If we've never personally placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we need to remember that God loved us so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. When a Philippian general asked the Apostle Paul, what do I need to do to be saved? Paul answered very simply and succinctly, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Not join a church, not give money, not promise to do better, not promise to turn around, not promise to give up drinking or drugs or whatever it is. All those things would be nice, but that's not what gets you saved. Placing your faith in your faith alone in Jesus Christ. So it's true. The great philosopher Socrates 
I think, did teach his followers how to die with dignity. But because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can live and die with confident expectation that we will see him in the future and live with him forever.